packet pushers. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. I am your host, Ethan Banks, and Ned Bellavance, as always, is with me. And today we're talking about GovCloud. What is GovCloud? Is it another cloud, like AWS is a cloud, and so GovCloud's a cloud too? Is that what it is, or is it is it something else entirely? And joining us today is Chris Wall, who's recently done a project, a big project in GovCloud, and is going to talk all about it with us. What stuck out to you in this conversation, Ned? You know, as someone who has heard about GovCloud as always being the asterisk at the bottom that says not available in GovCloud yet, I've always wondered what the minutiae and details were around using GovCloud. And Chris elucidated all of that and also had a, a couple interesting things to say about platform engineering. Yeah, more than a couple of interesting things to say about platform engineering. He has strong opinions and, uh, and some really worthwhile thoughts. So please enjoy this conversation with Chris Wall, Delivery Director at Slalom. Chris Wall, welcome back to Day 2 Cloud, you friend of the podcast, you, everyone knows who you are, but maybe someone doesn't actually know who you are. So so for those people who don't know who Chris Wall is, would you tell them who you are and what you do? I can, although I think the quantity of people in the don't know bucket has increased dramatically. Hello, Chris Wall. Uh, I work at a company named Slalom. I'm a delivery director there, uh, which basically means my job is to make sure that all the big complicated things that we do to build products and services for clients like modern applications and cloud platforms and whatever it may be goes well and that everyone knows what they're doing and understands how to do it, uh, which is fun because I get to work with very large teams solving very large problems, typically in what's called the public sector, so your government agencies. And that brings you to us today, because as you and I were talking in the back channel, uh, your, some of the work you've been doing at GovCloud came up. And, dude, I've never worked with GovCloud at all. I've heard of other people that are working on it, people that are responding to RFPs, that you have to do this work in GovCloud and so on. So let's start at the beginning, man. What is GovCloud? Yeah, the, the thing about most government environments is that they're built from a lot of legacy applications for the last 20 years that have been sort of like there was a core and then there was some layers on top of that. And the, the onion is built. And the onion eventually gets a little stinky. And you're thinking, how do I remove this onion? How do I build the modern version, the sparkly application in the cloud that everybody else has? How do I get a piece of that? Uh, normally, the answer would be very difficult, right? If you're going into a public cloud that's completely open to the world, that's not going to sit well with people. And so the cloud provider said, why don't we build a special version of our cloud that is purely available to only select people that need it, government agencies in this case, and we call that GovCloud, and every cloud provider has their flavor of what they call their government cloud, but a GovCloud in AWS nomenclature that is already certified by what this entity is called FedRAMP, which basically like, are what are all the rules to be a cloud consumer? Mm. Let's obviate as many of those as we can, and based on what level of security and scrutiny you have in FedRAMP, low, medium, or high, we can direct you into the right place to go. Uh, another kind of layer to that is the GovCloud that, that you're going to consume only spans two regions, right? West and East, because it has to live on sovereign soil. So uh, right. you'll notice that be kind of a, a difference. And if you're at a certain level of FedRAMP requirements, such as low and medium, you don't have to use a GovCloud. You can use specific regions that have FedRAMP medium certification applied to them. Uh, there's two regions in the commercial cloud that, that have that in AWS's uh, instance. Uh, but yeah, it's how do I build my stuff in the cloud and do it in a way that doesn't piss off, you know, all the people that have security concerns. GovCloud. <laughs> right. So it's not 
or it, it's not a separate data center that is uh, monitored and maintained by some federal agency and it has their own unique APIs and all of that stuff. It's actually built on like the big three. Yeah, like so if you're if you were today go to the browser and go to like a pricing calculator for AWS and you drop down regions at the very bottom, you're going to see GovCloud West and GovCloud East. There's just Got different it. regions. And the only way you can unlock access to those regions are if you are a government entity that has a, an agreement with them to consume this cloud. And then each account that you request is done one by one manually. You have to ask for the accounts as a person. You can't automate the provisioning of these accounts. Gotcha. So I can't just wander in and be like, I want to open an account on AWS GovCloud. Here's a credit card. Go make it happen. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> still need money, but <laughs> you have to, I mean, essentially, do you have a .gov address uh, for your mm -hmm. entity? And then what requirements do you have using GovCloud? There's some, there's some paperwork to get in there, but then once you're in, it's a pretty easy process to provision more accounts. It's just, there's no API you can hit. Right. Now, I know one thing that agencies are often concerned about is meeting the compliance checklist. And it sounds like because these facilities are FedRAMP certified, that means they can immediately check some boxes on the list. But you also mentioned that some other public clouds have a specific FedRAMP certification. So what would, why would I choose to use one of the public instances that might not tick as many boxes versus the official GovCloud that I know is going to tick all the boxes for compliance? Yeah, it's it's really just what 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 is your requirement? What is your data doing? Uh, and the low, medium, high is really around if the data was exfilled in some way, what would the impact be? Is it mm. a big impact? Is it going to cause like threat to life? Is it going to cause uh, issues with national security? That's high. You don't have a choice. That's going to go cloud, <laughs> period. Right. Okay. Because the data is too sensitive. And that's really what we're talking about. Like, what kind of data do you have and what would happen if it got lost? At the medium level, it's kind of a toss of the coin. A lot of places will just say, you know what, I'm going to go full GovCloud because then I'm covered. Other places, the complexity of what they're looking to build is just easily served in commercial cloud using something that is medium level qualified. Uh, and so that, that path is taken. It turns out they don't have very sensitive data. A lot of it may be just public data because you imagine for a government agency, they have a lot of information, right? They got... Mm -hmm never expires policy requirements on an ever-growing set of data. It never diminishes in size and it grows very rapidly. Uh, and a lot of that you can get access to as a citizen. So the vast majority of the data that I work with is already publicly available or publicly accessible. So you mentioned complexity of what they want to deploy. Does that imply that there are there's a difference in services that are available in the commercial versus the government clouds? I imagine there are. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, I think that's what makes sort of a seasoned architect that has worked in GovCloud different from someone that just joins into the world of GovCloud is there's a ton of differences. Uh, the problem is that they're not very blatant. It's not like, oh, service X exists here, but it doesn't exist in GovCloud. It's, mm. yeah, you can get service X. There's a lot of nuances that you have to learn around how X performs in GovCloud and what features are available and what responds. And, you know, think one, here's an example, kind of bit me in the butt. I was looking to set up FIFO queues uh, for my SNS and SQS topics and, and queues. And it's like, well, there is no FIFO in GovCloud. Because that would require having... Uh, the state of what's going on saved somewhere that violates some kind of checkbox, mm. right? So that <laughs> service doesn't exist. It can't exist. Uh, things like, I want to go look at the billing. Well, that's not in GovCloud. There's a paired 
commercial cloud account that goes with every GovCloud. You actually get two accounts every time you get a GovCloud account because hmm. I got to put the billing and payer information out of the GovCloud, right? So it has to live in a different account in the commercial cloud. So a lot of those like kind of oddities that you have to learn. Uh, it's not just like it's here, but not there. There's nuance to it. And I think that's honestly sort of fun because it's like relearning cloud in a lot of ways. And in a lot of ways, it's like going back in time a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have this fancy service. I have to take EC2 instances and put them together and run my containers on ECS and um, just sort of putting managed services together, which is honestly kind of fun. I do enjoy that. Uh, you've mentioned AWS as a GovCloud provider. Is that uh, true across the big three? Are there other smaller players maybe that would offer something that would be uh, good for FedRAMP and GovCloud? Yeah, I think all the all the big three for sure have some version of it. And I'm not really sure outside of that ecosystem. But now, honestly, I, I mostly work in AWS. I'm only sort of aware of the other options in the other two clouds. And then who are the consumers of GovCloud? Is it just federal or is it any state, state, local, any government agency would be eligible? Yeah, if you're a government agency in the United States and you have a use case, you're welcome to you know, go to the process of getting into GovCloud. But as a citizen, that's not anything I'd have a reason to use. And, and it sounds like I couldn't anyway, even if I wanted to. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You wouldn't want to. Trust. Just use commercial <laughs> cloud. It's, it's got all the things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's an easy choice. So those are the consumers and the providers. If I want to help with consulting in the world of GovCloud, as, as you clearly are, is there something special I need to do as a consultant, some clearances I need to get or training I need to go through to be able to work on GovCloud in the, under the auspices of one of these agencies? No, there's no special requirements that I'm aware of to work in GovCloud. What you're going to find, though, is that because there's, there's just a lot that isn't technical when it comes to GovCloud development delivery, like working in a cloud environment like that, you may have a requirement, uh, like AWS very highly prefers their partners to have the solution architect professional certification under their belt and other things to make sure they understand funding vehicles and technology vehicles and the six pillars and that sort of jazz. Mm-hmm. Uh, but not, you know, GovCloud doesn't say you must be some level of, you know, clearance or anything, uh, because that's really related more to the data that you're working with and how that data gets processed, which the cloud has no opinion on that. Gotcha. So there may the agency may require you to have some level of clearances to work on the project, but that's not up to the provider. That's up to the agency to decide. Absolutely. Yeah. Those those rules are enforced. Usually with the CISO and their team kind of lays the law, comes from the CIO of the US, and then they enforce that as policy and procedure. Uh, and there's tons of security when you're working with uh, these sorts of teams. So they take it very seriously. <laughs> <laughs> So are there agencies that don't use GovCloud? Uh, maybe intelligence agencies, these kind of things where they have their own computing in a secret bunker in, I don't know, South Dakota somewhere, and they, but, but you don't know because they, they take you out if you did know. Or can any agency <laughs> actually... kill you if I told you, yeah, I right. don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or, or are there agents, or can any agency use, use GovCloud? Like I said, there's, there's really no, no limits. A lot, of, a lot of it just comes down to the easy check. Do you have a .gov? Are you a .gov in some way, shape, or form? Then you're already in the system. Uh, you could submit the request to get into GovCloud and, and away you go. It, it's really more of a, what's your use case? What's going on here? What are you, what are you expecting to do? What kind of data are you going to have? Uh, and, then, and then you're in. Uh, and that's mostly to make sure, like, if you don't need GovCloud, don't use it. 
It's not just mm-hmm. a use it by default, right? Have a use case for it uh, because you are taking a pretty substantial amount of constraints and placing them on your design, both from a financial perspective, like how do you manage the billing? How do you, you know, how do you actually make this machine work uh, and operate in this sort of different billing and, and funding model, but also architecturally, uh, a lot of things that you would just sort of expect to be there, like the network analyzer doesn't exist. So if you're wanting to troubleshoot network issues, prepare to go old school, baby, and drop, you know, some sort of box in the middle and listen to traffic and things like that. It's, it's harder uh, to work with. So, so is it right to think about GovCloud from a standpoint of like what services are available? Like I have, I have everything I'd normally have on the AWS menu, but it just works funny with these certain restrictions. <laughs> or is it, would it be better to think about it like, well, it's pretty restrictive and here's the services you got and most of the stuff you don't have. No, no, you, you, I, I don't want to, I don't want to make it sound like you're, you're crippled and you're, you're walking around with like an eye patch on. Uh, it's, it, <laughs> it's very feature rich. There's most everything. It's just you you get a little blindsided We're like, oh, that that doesn't exist like the the FIFO or network analyzer or, you know, CloudFront doesn't exist. Right. I can't use CloudFront. So, mm. so how do I how do I do that? Right. But those are the, the big ones. Uh, and then the rest is sort of just like nuanced things rare you know, feature may not be available because it violates some sort of privacy issue or data compliance issue. And you have to dig a little bit to figure out why. But it like. EC2 works, everything's good. S3 does all the normal things. Like it's very feature rich. And the other side of that, maybe worth bringing up, is most typically as features get rolled out and you see it appear at reInvent and on the you know blogs or whatever, it's going to say at the bottom, not available in GovCloud, right? It's going to take a little <laughs> bit longer to get into GovCloud. And that that lag time isn't crazy, right? It's not anything that's like, oh my gosh, I'm on three versions behind commercial cloud. But it's just you kind of, you see something, a new shine, and you're like, I know that's not going to be available in GovCloud yet. When will it be, you know? So you have to play the, the waiting game just a little bit. So for for third-party, um, I'm thinking like multi-cloud networking particularly comes to mind as a pretty common add-on that people will uh, insert into their cloud architectures. Are those things available in Gov, GovCloud? Or is that, as you were just describing, maybe later it'll show up? Sure. No, no. A lot of those services, especially if it's from a third-party vendor, plug it in. Um, in fact, the landing zone design, the OU design, it's all pretty much the same. Like you can do. I, I tend to lean on a classic, you know, network account with the transit gateway and all your ingress egress there with some sort of WAF, and then you can use third-party, you can use AWS, whatever, and then that connects out to your. It's it's the hub and spoke model, same as normal. It's just some of the like CloudFront's probably a big one. Most people mm-hmm. just anytime you deploy a web app, of course you're going to deploy CloudFront to absorb everything under the sun that you need to absorb in front of your web service. And not having that just means you need to think very differently around how people access your applications and where you put those safeguards. Right. And that comes down to the fact that it's just two regions. So there is nowhere to CloudFront that data out to. <laughs> it's it's more the, the, the caching part of CloudFront conflicts with some... Uh, some requirements around GovCloud. And I'm not mm-hmm. super versed in like the details of that, but everyone that I've talked to is like, oh, the caching kills it. You know, it's just one of those things where we'd have to cache in commercial cloud in front of GovCloud. And that's actually one of the patterns you can employ, right? Put your CloudFront out of GovCloud and cache it in the front end. You could use a Cloudflare. You could go, I don't want any of that and go with like mm-hmm. AWS Shield. There's there's all different ways you can slice it, but just one of those things where you I I deployed a service uh, rather recently uh, that was web facing, 
in GovCloud and it's like, man, this is the first, you know, first year in the last 20 years of my life where I've deployed a web service without a CDN in front of it. You know, it's one of those sort of core shaking things like, oh, it's going to work. I, I don't know. You, know, you got to beat on this thing to make sure it's just so different from what you're used to. And uh, so those kind of challenges are just things you need to expect. Yeah, yeah, that definitely changes the the way that you would design it to handle extra load because that load is going to be hitting the servers directly. It's not being sure. hitting the but cache at the, anymore. At the same time, a lot of what you're building is localized to some degree at a state level, at a county level, at a you know a, a regional level. So you're you're not typically doing a multi-region deploy because mm-hmm. you don't need it. It's typically hot site, warm site. And you're expecting a large amount of, you know, large volume of actual user traffic minus the bots and all that other crap uh, trying to hit you from a relatively localized area, right? Because you're, you're building a service for your citizens. Right. So what are some of the typical use cases where I would consume GovCloud over building it in one of the, if the agency has existing data centers, why would they choose to go with GovCloud for a solution versus what they already have? Well, the data centers, I mean, data, data center is a grand word, right? For you and I, it probably means this giant room with air coolers and rows of computers. That's not typically what we're talking about here. Data centers like the closet, you know? So there's, 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 there's typically not a lot of real estate investment and capital investment beyond the servers and the, the and honestly, it's large networking. You know, a lot of old networking, a lot of networks need to be updated because there's lots of sites all over the place. And the on-prem is really just more connecting all of that to file servers mm. and print servers and then the application stack itself because it's typically legacy applications stacked as a monolith on a pile of servers, right? So there's not this big data center footprint that you're looking to move. Uh, just before it was like, what do they do? You know, they've got some VMware, they got some you know bare metal stuff. Can't go to commercial cloud in a lot of cases, especially if you're dealing with law enforcement or criminal data or you know things that just I can't do it. And so that was the beauty of something like GovCloud because as much as you may want to like foo-foo a less feature-rich version of cloud, it certainly beats the you know the flaming dumpster heap in a you know closet in some building somewhere. Like we can do better than that. Chris, yeah. I got to interject here because you're bringing back so many memories from the time I spent in state government, and a lot of it has to do with well, why. You might take a step back and look at a state government and go, well, wait a minute. Don't I'm assuming they've got some great big data center somewhere that supports all the different applications for all the different agencies. No, not even close. Because of funding sources tends to be what drives it. You have this little pot of money came in from this bill, and that allowed us to build this one little thing. That's a exactly. server in a closet somewhere in a building that was never designed for compute. The buildings are old. There was never a data center concept. Everything Everything's been retrofitted with fiber and cabling as best as they could. You're drilling uh, conduit through concrete and brick, just trying to get things connected. <laughs> you're 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 putting armored fiber in the ground where it was never meant to go, and uh, and then everything just grows piecemeal. And you've got a bunch of weird applications that are like it's on this ancient Wang box sitting in a corner. It's like a who, what Wang made CP? Yeah, they did for a long time, and 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 our social security app runs on it, or you know whatever it is back in the day. And so you don't have this beautiful data center like you were describing, Chris. You know, rows of computers, and there's air cooling, and no, it's not like that. Everything's hodgepodge. Everything's piecemeal. Nothing's standardized. Everything's different. 
And so it's not like we're going to have this beautiful, cohesive plan to pick up our applications and move them to the cloud. And we're going to be able to do it in this organized, effective way because everything's been done to a standard for forever. It's nothing like that at all in my experience. I don't know if the work you've done is, is paralleled that, but it was a, uh, uh, I don't know. It was like, do the best you can with what you're given kind of environment within state government agencies. There's two things in that I want to, I want to pull on a little bit. One, you're absolutely right. And I think it's worth mentioning that Funding models for these agencies are appropriated and targeted to a specific use case. I didn't pool my money and say, here's my giant bucket of money. Let's aggregate that together and use it to make things better. It's like, no, that money is for this particular person and this person's interest. And I have to spend it and then show basically a receipt saying, I spent it on your thing and here's what you got. Yes. I can't use that money anywhere else. So that's definitely important uh, and is something that makes cloud very attractive. Uh, number two, you're right, man. It is this hodgepodge of random stuff. And, and the only reason that this stuff works, and I want to be very, very clear here, is because the people that work in these agencies are nothing short of amazing, right? They <laughs> are paid next to nothing, but they care so much. They they form like a family almost. They they really, they understand these systems. They care for them. They It's just a lot of humans standing in front of the inadequacies of legacy systems that have been inherited and mm -hmm. just doing their best. And when you release them from that, wow, they're able to do such amazing things because they already, they already give a crap, right? You just, they just have these chains of old technology kind of weighing them back as they're trying to run and they're, they're, they're just doing the best they can. Uh, and so those are two very big constraints that hit these environments, you know, like how do I spend my money and then how do I ev uh, evolve my team both from a technology and from a skills perspective. Hello, podcast listener. If you're looking for even more IT podcasts, check out Kubernetes Unpacked, a podcast by and for engineers who are building and supporting microservices applications. Each episode covers an aspect of the Kubernetes ecosystem, as well as industry developments like DevOps, platform engineering, and the latest tools and technologies. It's hosted by Michael Levan and Christina Devochko, developers who bring their experience and insights to conversations on software development, automation, observability, security, open source, ongoing learning, and more. Kubernetes is complex, but Michael and Christina help you unpack it in every episode. Find Kubernetes Unpacked on packetpushers.net or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, Chris, I think the next part of the conversation then needs to be, we, we understand the challenge. We understand what GovCloud is doing, at least at a high level. You've recently built an application in GovCloud. You, you talked to me in the back channel on the phone about it quite a bit because it was pretty involved. It was, it was pretty awesome. Um, t tell us what you can, like, like, like walk us through what was the project, what were the major requirements, and then take us through the whole process. How did you, how did you meet those requirements and build this thing? What were the big challenges along the way? Mm. Well, take what I just said as kind of a starting point around great people, a lot of legacy tech, and funding being, being a challenge. The use case here is that same situation, but the team really wanted to evolve a, a web-facing you know, client and community, I guess I would say community and citizen-facing application. Uh, the experience that they were having, the, the citizens, was just not great, right? It was a decent system, but it was built on the backs of a lot of complexity, running on-prem. It was being offered to the citizens very, you know, like they, they did the best they can with this commercial software to give the experience necessary. And that's about all I can go into uh, on, on the application side. So web app, people use it, 
experience feels yeah. like Windows 95, right? It's not, not really where it needs <laughs> to be. Um, well, how do you fix that? We can build a modern application in GovCloud, right? We can build a container-based, serverless, function-driven. That's fine. But then where does it go? What does it live on? And how do you build something that allows a team that has spent their whole time, for the most part, running VMware stuff on closets of, of data center stuff and transform them in a team that knows CICD, understands infrastructure as code, is able to build out platforms in the cloud, is able to secure that and feel confident once these applications go live that if there's problems, they can troubleshoot them and et cetera. So my problem set was really one, design a platform capable of supporting this application and the evolution of this application because it's consisting of multiple domains that have to work together. So it's a bunch of services that sort of combine into the application, but also make sure that the team in place uh, once we're done, is already comfortable in managing and operating both the platform and the applications that that ride on top of it, right? So that was about a year of my life in my most recent project doing that. Yeah, well, the, you actually have a pretty important requirement there that this is turnkey. You're not you or someone on your team is not going to be operating this for the government agency for the rest of their lives. You're you're providing a turnkey solution that the folks on that end are going to inherit and need to operate and run, be able to troubleshoot, deal with going forward. Yeah, I would say if I prioritize those two, that was number one, because it didn't really matter how much we built out of the platform, as long as the team understood what was how it worked and how to evolve it, we were good. And then number two was, you know, build out the applications that ride on top of it and build actually build the platform. And so that was the that was kind of the impetus of it. The the way that we broke it down was we took a period of time in the beginning of the project to start building the platform, build, you know, what we call architectural decision records or ADRs, where we take the landing zone, the security policies, IAM roles, like everything that you need to build the core services of a cloud platform. We took them piece by piece, defined all the requirements, which is great because then you can walk through what do we actually need for this? And what do you think we need for this? And it's just a great exercise to get everyone contributing went through the process of getting those reviewed and approved by the leaders that are necessary on the client site. And then they became a law essentially. So we had this library of ADRs describing how we wanted to build all those components. And then over the course of uh, four or five weeks, we, we built that together. Uh, at that point, it was just us. It was this platform team coming together about, about uh, uh, building the infrastructure necessary to build those core services. Once we had that online, we had CICD in place, we had kind of the basics so that we could onboard developers, they came and they came en masse. It was like a locust swarm coming to a cornfield. You know, they just devoured everything that we had and then asked for more. And it was, it was awesome because at that point, the domain teams are there building their services and consuming the platform. And we go from kind of the theoretical of building out this platform, offering managed services, offering CICD, you know, uh, all of that jazz to now you have customers and this is going to be a totally different experience. <laughs> and they're going to, you know, you haven't built a library of pipelines yet. You haven't built out a library of application modules yet. I'm going to show you how to build all of those. And so that next period was let's build our library. Let's build all of our Terraform modules. Let's build all of our, uh, our Python SDK or our platform SDK rather. Let's build all the tools that are necessary so that every time we solve a problem, we're solving it as globally as possible, right? We're not there to solve any particular domains problem. We solve everyone's problem. Uh, and then the final segment was really more around, now that we have this defined, we have all these applications and domains deployed on this platform for one environment, for dev, 
let's then go through the process domain by domain and figure out how to get them onto test and stage and prod and what that looks like and what changes need to happen to the code. And the reason for that was, I mean, we could have just started day one with let's build a multi-environment, completely stateless, dynamically built Terraform code that whiz bangs out, you know, everything that is necessary. But man, can you imagine starting there in your learning journey? Like that's where <laughs> someone's trying to point to this is, you know, that's the lightsaber. I needed to kind of show here's the, here's the, here's the boned club that you can use to solve problems. And then we evolved <laughs> through, you know, to get to the lightsaber, but it was a very specific and methodical process to take someone through sort of the journey of let's manage infrastructure and core services. Let's then provide the basics for one environment for all your domains and applications. And then let's scale that so that they all are able to produce the multiple environments using the same set of source code. There's something important here. You built a platform. You didn't build uh, a web server delivering an application. You built a platform upon which application, one application, more application could be built, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, that's the key, right? If the applications are cars, then the developers are really just the designers of the car. Right. The platform needs to make the car actually from the design, but it needs to make lots of different versions of that car as they test different ideas on how to build the car. And it needs to build a factory that builds cars because that's the landing zone and the, and the platform that the applications are built upon, right? So it's, how do I build the factory? How do I build the car itself? How do I build a, a three-dimensional version of the car so that there's different flavors of it for dev test stage or whatever? How do I get people to, you know, in the, in the test and stage environment, I want external people to come in and poke at it. So how do I build a showroom for cars? All of that is, is platform. And if that's done right, then the application development process should be pretty simple, right? Because you're able to put in code. You're able to see what happens to it. You're given a test bed. There's immediate feedback. You can easily promote code from one end to the next. Like the, the list goes on and on. Uh, the better you do at the platform, the better you're going to have a chance at building a great product. It sounds like you were wearing two different hats in this project. One was that of, maybe I'd call it like a product manager, almost because you're developing a product essentially for this platform team to consume and taking feedback and refining features and all that jazz. At the same time, you're also a trainer. You're developing curriculum and how to train and teach this platform team to use the thing that you're building. So how did you balance those two somewhat different roles? I was just really lucky uh, first to even get on the project, just kind of right time, right people. Um, and one of the things that I saw very early was what you brought up, Ned. I was like, wow. There's a lot of people that can architect this, and there's a lot of people that could build a training curriculum through this, but having to do both definitely stretched me. And I'll say that the training part was the easier of the two, only because I have the background there, right? Mm -hmm. I, I built stuff for Pluralsight and, and all that kind of jazz. So they, it wasn't, that was like the, the vehicle to deliver the content, the, the backend that was creating the content, right? And it had to be a multi-phased approach to building a platform, knowing that I'm going to start really simple and basic. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and honestly, I loved that and felt like the, the way that I was successful there and the things I would advise the, the audience uh, to do are number one, ADRs or some sort of architecture record keeping, decision making is a must, right? Because I knew right out the gate, I'm not going to have the answers here. There's too many unknowns. There's too many variables. I need people to help me build the architecture. So I, I, didn't, I didn't silo that and I made sure it was all very shared. I made sure that everyone understood what decision had been made and why before we progressed. So that would be number one. I think number two is realizing that 
man, sometimes you're going to have the answer and you really want to say what the answer is. And that's not the job. <laughs> the job is to ask the right questions and guide people to those answers so that they truly understand what they are. And honestly, sometimes that meant seeing the team on the way to make a mistake, but it wasn't a big mistake and it wasn't going to hurt anybody. And so I let it happen. And they were like, oh, wow, when we do that stove hot, it hurts. I'm like, yep, now you won't do that anymore. <laughs> so it was finding opportunities to teach through, I'm going to let you make some mistakes. And unless they're big, and there was a few where I was like, okay, I'm, I'm interjecting. This isn't how we should do this, but I see where you're going with it. But by and large, it was try it. What happens? Oh, it blew up. Well, now you know how not to make it. Do you want help? Do you want to build another version? What do you want to do? And I think that was the... Uh, I'm rambling a little bit, but on the beginning of the project, the, the big concern everyone has, and I think everyone here will will share this, is I'm scared of this. This is new. This is I don't know if I can do this. I've never mm-hmm. done this before. This is this looks hard and high tech, and there's just all these doubts. And being able to say like, well, let's find out. Just try things. Poke at it. You, it's safe to experiment. Not only gives that team the confidence that they need, but like that's a core tenet that your team should have at a culture level. Experimentation is good. I should share experiments that I do. Failure is not the point. That's just data. Uh, and I think that really helped them big time. Yeah, if you, if you think about where they were coming from, having to maintain these legacy systems that were very fragile. And so you had to be very deliberate and careful with any update, any change. Now you're moving to this system where you're encouraged to experiment and break things. That's going to take them a minute to shift that mindset and and accept that it's almost a cultural shift, right? Yeah. The I'll tell you one of the moments I had I had several moments along the way where I say I see the light bulb come up, and I I love the <laughs> light bulb moment. I live for the light bulb. It's it's what recharges me. And I remember we we had security and, and platform teams together, which security is on the platform team, by the way. Don't silo your platform team. Security, DevOps, cloud, <laughs> put all the people in the soup, right? So we had a, our security engineer and cloud engineers and all the, all the people were talking. Oh, we found this, this vulnerability when we need to scan. It's internal. It wasn't, it wasn't, it was just, we needed to add some header uh, somewhere. And I'm like, oh, cool. Well, let's, uh. Let's put a, a story together for that, track it, and submit a merge request because we're in GitLab and it's all MRs instead of PRs. Submit the merge request, get it approved, get it, ran through testing, got it approved, pushed it, and like, all right, we're cool. And they're like, well, how do we, how do we get that security change everywhere else? I'm like, it already is. Oh, <laughs> because it was a manual word. It's like, oh, there's the, the security always had to kind of go behind anyone that was doing something by hand and run a scan and, hey, this thing isn't here. And how do we fix it in all these 37 places? Well, that meant changing it in 37 places. Right. And here I'm like, no, change it in source. We push it through the merge request. The pipeline's already run. Everything's already vulnerability patched. And there's like, oh, my God, this changes our <laughs> life. I'm like, it does. You know? <laughs> so that, that was a big one. I think the other big one was... Um, once we got pretty advanced in building the platform, we had multi-pipelines, uh, pipelines of pipelines, things where um, we wanted to make a change very globally. Like, hey, across all of our accounts, we wanted to introduce this new bucket, just to name some random example. Awesome. Go to our mono repo where we store all of our infrastructure, add a bucket, flag it for all the different environments and accounts, run a pipeline. It runs all the account pipelines. We get telemetry back. I'm like, okay, cool. Everything's done. Like that would have taken days by hand to like go do all the work. I was like, you don't have to. <laughs> so just the, the, the power of the mutability because, because, because here's why here's the context, right? 
And I think sometimes we forget this. We're thinking commercial off-the-shelf software, uh, 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 but also think about when you discover a problem with a legacy app. How do you get it solved? You have to like email someone, file for support, get the ticket raised, have them believe that you're telling the story correctly. When are they going to apply the patch? How do they apply the patch? When does it come in? When's our like? There's so much time between identifying a security issue or a, a whatever it may be, and when it gets fixed. And there's so much control that you don't have. And now they have control. There's a problem right here. Let's just huddle. Oh, we have a solution. 45 minutes later, it's solved. And it's globally deployed everywhere. It's like, that is so powerful. And why I'm such a big believer of like a solid platform builds a solid product. So this platform you built, you built it in GovCloud. um, But you've also talked about challenges in limitations of GovCloud because of all the different rules that go around governing data and so on. Were you limited in what you wanted to do with a platform engineering solution by GovCloud? I think some of the notable places where I had to make, I had to call it a constraint requirement, whatever. Um, One, everything has to be a managed service. I'm not really allowed to use SaaS software or things that have to talk externally. There's some exceptions. There's some things that don't matter. There's some things that do, but for example, our CI/CD. I'm a huge lover of GitLab. Uh, I've only used the SaaS version before, so for this, I had to stretch a little bit. How do you run a managed, self-managed version of GitLab and, and install it? Hint, by the way, it's super awesome, and I love it, and I can just gush about how much <laughs> I love GitLab anytime. But anyways, marketing for them over. Um, that was a big one. Uh, things like uh, using a security scanner that is SaaS. How do I connect that in? How do I securely bring that in? Does it have OIDC? Do I have to accept a token as a certificate base? Like, there's a lot of things that are more acceptable security-wise and less acceptable security-wise. And things like, do I use Azure AD to do the identity? Do I use some other identity service? Like that requires a lot of thinking through and a lot of conversations with security to make sure that yeah, it's super secure and we're totally used to this, and they are not. Right. So you have to to bring them along on that journey. I think things like that, but by and large, expect to build, expect to go like, that's why I say a little old school, right? Manage services. I'm going to uh, deploy my GitLab uh, service and instance locally on EC2 running on some Linux box. I now have to set up times where I'm updating it in my update window. And that process of documenting that uh, are things that you may not norm because you just like, I'll just pull it off the shelf, SAS, 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 put SAS for everything. That's, that's not the reality. I think another one that that comes to mind is uh, GovCloud as a system must be self-contained, right? So you're not going to like bolt on a commercial cloud account to run something over here and have that feedback in. You're in all the way, right? So your Mm -hmm. application must be self-contained to the secure environment. Otherwise, what's the point of that GovCloud? You're breaking the rules. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's something that was a challenge because you're a developer, right? You're not in the nuance of that stuff when you're building your application stack. And when you see something like FIFO not being available or CloudFront, you go, well, can't we just use it in commercial cloud, attach it to this? I'm like, technically, yes. Legally, no. So uh, (laughs) it's just things like that that uh, um, are just different, right? They just feel a little bit different. So you built a platform, you, but you were there to, to deploy one particular app or are they going to be deploying, or did you deploy more apps on the platform or are they just going to use the platform to deploy more apps now that it's all built? There's one, uh, there's multiple apps. One, the one is public facing. So it has a web interface that any, you know, you and I can, can get to. And so that's that app. And there's actually multiple kind of things that have to go to, to figure out how to get all that public data and parse it and move it where it needs to go to get into web service. So there's that, but it's largely not that complex. 
Um, there are multiple other domains, right? So I think there's uh, six or seven different domains. Each one has multiple applications. There's some shared applications. Uh, there's things like open API contracts that you use for your API gateways uh, to define your Lambda function. So there's there's a lot of sort of circuitry that's available as a shared resource uh, because we want all the applications to be off of a singular blueprint using very similar components, right? We don't want completely random stuff being built. The domains have to talk to one another uh, at, on their back ends. Uh, but then there's multiple applications that aren't ever going to be publicly evasing because they're internal applications, they're backend applications that are doing things necessary to provide uh, the services that are available internally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and there's also like, uh, I'm, I know that they've added some more since I've really not been involved day to day. Uh, and that process was really simple because it's all automated. Hey, I want a new domain for whatever. Boop, put in the name, four environments spit out. Here's your project. Uh, so we made sure that or at least I wanted to make sure that they had the ability to, to offer very easy self-service and they built it, right? I just designed it. They mm -hmm. built it all. So uh, they know how it works. Yay. So Chris, if I've been listening to this and uh, I'm interested in going after some GovCloud work, uh, maybe me, my consultants say, however you want to look at it. Is there a, a, a process to that? Can I get certified? Is there some magic incantation that's going to happen before I can <laughs> respond to those RFPs? Um. There's a lot of uh, mechanisms that must be adhered to to respond to RFPs. Typically, each each entity has some sort of sheet that they go off of where you have to be a vendor on that sheet. So I'd say a lot of non-technical work must be done to respond to these RFPs. Uh, none of it has anything really to do with GovCloud, right? GovCloud is a tool. You can use it when you need it. You cannot use it when you don't need it. Uh, it's really an optional component in the design. And in a lot of cases, it doesn't matter what the requirements of the application are. The client is just going to decide what they want, right? If they want to be mm -hmm. in GovCloud, they're going to be in GovCloud. And that's that's the end of it, right? They just have requirements that are beyond the application itself. So I'd say most of the time, you're not going to be part of that decision-making process. And if you are, uh, it's going to be because you're, you're already in the machine of responding to these RFPs. So is there a mechanism that if I am responding to an RFP, they're going to be expecting you've been, I don't know, certified in GovCloud. Is that a thing? There's no, no there's no, there's because no, it's, it's just AWS. Right? Yeah. There's, there's no difference outside of the, you know, the differences are all at the service and feature level. Mm -hmm. Same, same process, same tools, same terror, like everything works identical. The APIs that exist are the same. It's more around what again what is the data for the client yeah. what are you doing with it that's what matters GovCloud is just you know the road that you're driving on i got it okay so it's not like if i had some magical GovCloud thing that i could attach to my company all of a sudden the world of <laughs> government contracts is open to me it's not like that at all it's it's all the normal stuff responding to rfps and having the yeah. being able to match the criteria in the rfp if i so happen to be using GovCloud for the solution that's fine but it's not special it doesn't win me any special eligibility to go after work yeah, and I, I think anyone like like me, I, I I had to start too a couple of years ago. It was my first adventure in GovCloud, and uh, I, it, it wasn't super intimidating, right? If you know AWS, if you've worked and built applications in AWS, you're going to hit these things like, oh, no CloudFront, cool. What do we do? Oh, no FIFO, cool. What do we do? You know, hey, I don't want to use Kubernetes in here because it's kind of weird. What do we do? You know, it's just your standard. This option is available. What other options do I have? Hit up some friends. Go figure it out. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I feel like it was, it had a learning curve that felt very steep for about a month. And then I'm like, okay, we got this. <laughs>
Well, Chris, uh, it feels like we had two conversations in a way. We were talking about GovCloud. We were also talking about platform engineering. Maybe there's another show where we dive more deeply into your philosophy of platform engineering because you have opinions, I could tell. (laughs) (laughs) I'm happy to. I think most of my opinions are... um, The thing I like about platform engineering, I guess I'll end with this, is it takes a lot of things that we already know that as individual components don't really move the needle on change for organizations like DevOps. Great ideas, great frameworks, great checklists. Very weird implementation when people build like teams around it. Platform is something you can build a team around. And whether you think platform engineering is BS or not, it, it's a nexus where you can bring in security, network, cloud, all these different teams that are building a platform, whether they like it or not, <laughs> and give them the ability to, to stretch horizontally across a lot of different use cases and applications. And when you provide that level of consistency, the application side of the house just starts to flow. Mm-hmm. It moves faster, the quality's improved, the developer experience is better. Uh, and, and I like that. And that's why, I'm, that's why I invest in platform engineering. Mm. Well, Chris, how can people follow you on the internet? I'm just on LinkedIn. So Chris Fall on LinkedIn. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, but you've been writing too, blog, haven't you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, that's true. I do blog from time to time. I actually forgot about that. Wallnetwork.com. Every, every few months or so, I, I have some mad ravings on platform engineering that comes out and design. Mad ravings those. worth reading. They're usually, they're, they're hardly mad ravings. They are, they're thoughtful, carefully considered and, uh, and worth, worth reading. So wallnetwork.com and find Chris on LinkedIn and a virtual high fives to you for tuning in out there. If you have suggestions for future shows, guests you want us to interview, topics you want us to cover, we would love to hear them. You can hit either of us up. I am Ethan Banks and of course, Ned Bellavance on LinkedIn is where we're at or the Packet Pushers community Slack where you will find us in the day to cloud pod channel. Just go up to packetpushers.net to find that and so much more for your professional career development several more podcast series newsletters blogs and videos all free for you no login required and until then just remember cloud is what happens while it is making other plans Mm -hmm.